following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. So we're going to begin with some classical music. This is a very powerful piece. I'm pretty sure you've all heard it before. But you might not have watched it to listen to the libretto, the lyrics. It's sung in Latin. And it is originated from a medieval, I believe, uh, collection of writings, which were uh, attributed to a certain group of monks, mendicants. And so Karl Orff took this music, or better said, took the writings of these um, you know, medieval insights to talk about a very profound reality, the reality of the heart. And music is the language of the heart. In a way, music transcends intellect, mind, theory, rationality, and hits home to a core aspect of ourselves that is more profound than thought. And music can teach us many things, especially music from great initiates, people who had a certain level of spiritual mastery. And we're gonna watch this piece, Carmina Burana, the first two sections to talk about the nature of spiritual action or to use Sanskrit words, karma, cause and effect, to be or not to be. We chose this piece because it's powerful and it speaks to the heart. The value of music, especially those from initiates, is that they communicate to our soul about the drama of the spiritual path and what is ahead of us in terms of ordeals, of struggle and and strife. But more importantly, to recognize in ourselves that we have agency. We have a choice. What behaviors do we enact? What are the decisions we make, especially in moments of great crisis, like you listen to in the piece? Great turmoil, the suffering of fate, the arbitrariness of, of challenges in a way, seeming injustices when facing great pain, 
do we allow that weight to pull us down or do we in effect rise up and part of the reason of talking about Carmina Burana is that it is about karma and Karl Orff was communicating that in life we inevitably must face hardship it is our basic destiny because in our past we enacted causes that produce the pain we experience now. now obviously the intensity of the music shows the gravity of the situation spiritually speaking where we're at to be or not to be i'm pretty sure anyone who approaches real spirituality any religion has suffered a lot because we want answers we want to know what is the truth what is reality what is the spirit what is divinity not from belief experience from facts and rather than change religions or change beliefs adopt the garb the vesture of a religion learning the the names the language the lingo the belief system we operate on a very different level we operate from the heart because the mind our intellect can think what it wants we have beliefs or theories assumptions prejudices but what do we actually know from our heart from experience i'm pretty sure most people have had some type of spiritual experience especially in our youth when our mind was less developed or acculturated to a society that is very materialistic in our youth we had a moment in which we knew joy real freedom real innocence but with time we obviously we lose that we get become adults we mature maybe we become jaded because of some kind of trauma some kind of pain It's important to understand that real knowledge is of the heart. Real wisdom is what we live. Real knowledge comes from experience. And more importantly that experience of higher realities comes when we investigate our own heart, our own mind, our ways of living and to look not to assume that we know i am of this race this culture this religion this belief system this politics this upbringing but really look at what's inside in terms of our emotions our impulses our will this active looking is precisely what every tradition teaches about meditation to look to observe to acquire new information not to assume that we already know who we are but to be open and to watch in a state of stillness of observation of clarity it is that inner discrimination of ourselves that really helps us to distinguish right from wrong and it is our heart our conscience that tells us what is right and what is wrong we may have traditions that tell us these things but what do we know in our being about what to do 
especially when we're faced with situations that are so complex that we are baffled, we are confused, we are overwhelmed, like you heard in Carmina Burana. When fate hits, the hammer of karma, of hardship strikes, we find all of those things that we ignore typically that become uh, to the that come to the surface of our mind. Things we may neglect or fail to look at. Inner discrimination is precisely the beginning of knowing how to experience a state of being that is truly free and which is really the qualifications of divinity. Divine being. Not any figure outside, but in our heart. Because our own divinity, the spark of the spirit, is inside. It's a state of consciousness. An altered state of consciousness. One that is not limited to pain. Anger, fear, pride, resentment, laziness, desire. It is free of all that. And it is a spark of being that knows how to resolve problems in the moment. Doesn't have to presume what to do or think or plan or conjecture, but to know spontaneously without effort. We have to distinguish the real from the false, but not in terms of beliefs. What sounds more correct? What argument is better? What ideology fits my appetite? Spiritually, culturally, whatever it may be. Instead, it's distinguishing in the moment what states in us create problems. In our relationships, in our career, with our families, with our children, with our grandparents. What do we do and what states in us are the progenitors of real pain? And to be willing to look. And looking is a very painful thing because we see that we have a lot of garbage. And we have to learn to look at that and to be willing to break. Like you heard with Karl Orff's music, it is a cry of real pain, of real sorrow, with how overwhelming situations are when the fate strikes and we feel like we are on the cross saying, my father, why have you forsaken me? And to be willing to be vulnerable and to be humble and to be willing to look at where we don't want to. That is the power of the heart. It comes through vulnerability and it comes when we face real trial and that divinity wants us to know how will we prove ourselves because that is the way that we grow. This is why in the voice of the silence, Blavatsky wrote, Search for the paths, but all the new disciple, be of clean heart before thou startest on thy journey. Before thou takest thy first step, learn to discern the real from the false, the ever fleeting from the everlasting. Learn above all to separate head learning from soul wisdom, the I from the heart doctrine. What is real? Serenity, compassion, love, sacrifice, even for those who create our greatest pain, to give to them even when they are the ones who hammer in the nails, to love despite 
trauma and weakness and fear. That is divinity. Or, in Gnostic terms, Christos, Christ. The energy of divinity who can express when we learn to distinguish that presence in our heart. And not to look to appearances, the I doctrine, to what seems to be what it is, but to look at what really is, the power of the heart. And because we suffer from this lack of knowledge, not from the intellect, not from reading, not from studying a scripture, or that we lack culture, we haven't read enough or done enough comparative religion or whatever may interest us. Instead, real knowledge is in the heart. And when we experience something for ourselves that is so real that you cannot deny, we cannot deny it, such as having a dream, or better said, a vision. You're asleep physically, and we are awake when our body's asleep. And we see life and reality with more color and vividness and intensity than our daily life. In a state like that, you can experience reality. States beyond the senses. But that has to be cultivated. That has to be developed. Has to be worked with. Has to be intentional. Can't be sporadic. And that's the point, purpose of these classes, so that we learn practices to develop that and know for ourselves. Because when we lack real understanding, real vision about how to orient our life, we suffer. And that suffering is of the soul. And the soul suffers when it does not grow. And I believe that anybody who is approaching religion of any kind feels a pain in their heart, a conscience, a bite, a yearning that is really gripping our very being and tells us do something, even though that voice is very far away and that we cannot hear it. And in a way, ignorance is not a lack of book knowledge. It is a lack of experience about how to wisely navigate life. Yea, ignorance is likened to a closed and airless vessel, the soul a bird shut up within. It warbles not, nor can it stir a feather, for the songster mute and torpid sits, and of exhaustion dies. What's more important than this, too, is a balance. Because in life, we need knowledge. We need the intellect. We need to live in society. We need to develop our personality, how we work with people. Knowledge that can effectively help us to earn our daily bread, be in the world, and to be of service to some degree. However, that alone is the problem because many people develop that part of their, their equation in life, focusing on the material. Meanwhile, not knowing how to live how to be happy, how to be content, how to be serene. But even ignorance is better than head learning with no soul wisdom to illuminate and guide it. There's a saying by Samuel Vior, the founder of this tradition, who says that we need to learn to think with the heart and feel with the head. 
Personally, I have a job that's very intellectual. But over the years, I've learned to use more of my heart, especially in how I work with people, my clients. And finding that balance really teaches us, teaches us how to be, how to be present. And in that way, we discover what is truly valuable. So we see this image of the Wheel of Fortune that was cited in Carmina Gurana, the Wheel of Fate, Destiny, cyclical existence, where there is the rise and fall of moments of success and failure, victory and defeat, good and bad. Life is precisely this wheel. It is cyclical. It is recurrence. It is mechanical. We get up for our job. We eat our breakfast. We go to work. We spend time with our families. We go home. We rest. We sleep. Repeat. We repeat all the time. But how conscious are we in the moment? Are we just going through the motions of life? Or are we seeing something new in each moment. So obviously, this wheel turns not because of some arbitrary force in nature or divinity, but our own decisions, our own will. We enact behaviors that are cyclical. We repeat certain thoughts, memories, behaviors, beliefs, emotions. But are we cognizant of that? Are we aware of what we're thinking and feeling and doing in the morning, in the daytime, at work, with our spouse, in the bedroom, with our children, at home, whatever it may be? Are we conscious of all of that? Are we watching? Are we observing? Are we trying to learn about our own mind? And what in us is precisely turning this wheel again and again? Because to transcend this mechanicity requires originality of the soul, the ability to originate action that is free of dualism. Yes or no, good or bad, should I do this, should I not do this, should I, how do I solve this? It happens when we look and we watch and we wait. Certainly the intuition, the knowing, inspires us about how to behave with whoever we were at with. And if we let that guide our actions, the mind calms. We feel less at, we feel more at peace with ourselves that we didn't do something that we regret and that we have remorse for. But this wheel precisely turns. It elevates the, the proud and devastates the, the, sorry, elevates the proud, but humbles the arrogant. And in a way, there are two doctrines, as we're insinuating here. The doctrine of the eye, the doctrine of the heart. What do we believe through appearances? But what do we really know from experience? All the great masters of spirituality, from whatever religion, whatever prophets, were humble. They did not assume that they knew more than others. They only wanted to help and never attached themselves to an identity like being a great priest, a great lama, a great imam, a great rabbi. What we're really 
exemplary figures who truly, because of their humility, received wisdom. Because only when we are, are looking actively do we receive. If we think we know, we're full. The cup can't receive new wisdom, new wine. False learning is rejected by the wise and scattered to the winds by the good law. Its wheel revolves for all, the humble and the proud. The doctrine of the eye is for the crowd, the doctrine of the heart for the elect. The first repeat in pride, behold, I know. The last they who in humbleness have garnered, lo, confess, thus have I heard. So knowledge of the world is necessary to a degree. But in its essence, it's very superficial. It can resolve some of our problems. In a sense, economically, having a job or career. But what about acting from a state of consciousness that is very pure and innocent? Great sifter is the name of the heart doctrine, O disciple. Because it is very difficult. It is very challenging to do. Which is why in history and cultures there have been very few masters. And many believers. So life is that testing ground. That wheel that sifts through the corn, through the husk. To extract and to break the, the shell. And that as a symbol represents something psychological. How in our own spiritual path, we have to break the husk of desire, of egotism, of pride, of hatred, because the most valuable part of us is trapped in that. And our anger is part of our consciousness. In our fear, there is part of our consciousness. In our laziness, there is something that is valuable there that is trapped. And when you break those defects, you will liberate the soul like the genie from Aladdin's lamp. And that is the source of real genius, real ingenuity, real power, real wisdom. Because when, in hate is trapped sweetness. In lust, there is trapped purity. In fear, there is security in God. In, hate, in uh, resentment, there is forgiveness. And in that duality, really, or in that cage, is the, really the identity of who we seek to liberate and to free. And life is that testing ground so that we face hardship because we need to extract soul, wisdom from those terrible states of suffering so that we can become radically free. And that wheel, in a sense, is governed by justice. In a sense, she's blind, not in the arbitrary sense that she just willy-nilly punishes people who don't deserve it. But that justice is impartial, does not show favoritism, does not show favor unless we've earned it by the divine law. The wheel of the good law moves swiftly on. It grinds by night and day. The worthless husks, it drives from out the golden grain, the refuse from the flower. The hand of karma guides the wheel. The revolutions mark the beatings of the karmic heart. So depending on how we act, uh, really transforms our situations. Because 
if we want wisdom and real serenity, more alignment in our conscience, we have to be very humble and willing to change. And from that process, as we're looking at ourselves, observing our own errors and understanding what real virtue is and allowing that virtue to blossom, we gain real wisdom and we leave out the superfluous, the arbitrary, the fake, especially in terms of our personality. Things that we just acquire in life, but aren't really the essence of who we are. True knowledge is the flower. False learning is the husk. If thou wouldst eat the bread of wisdom, thy flower thou hast to knead with Amrita's clear waters. But if thou nettest husks with Maya's dew, thou canst create but food for the black doves of death, the birds of birth, decay, and sorrow. So what are these clear waters? It's a beautiful symbol. I was mentioning to some of you that Blavatsky's scripture is a really a precursor to Buddhism, but also Hinduism as well. It's very ancient. But we'll use some Buddhist terms to explain the heart of compassion, the heart of real wisdom, the waters of life. As symbolized in Genesis, the Babylonian myths, all scriptures talk about the purity of water, cleanliness, the purity of the mind, purity of the heart and the body. This term in Buddhism is bodhicitta. And in many levels of instruction, in many levels of Buddhism, they teach that to awaken the powers of the heart, real wisdom requires understanding three levels of instruction, which you find in any tradition. You find that there's an introductory, intermediate, and advanced path. Or in Buddhism, Shravakayana, Mahayana, Tantrayana. Or in Sufism, Sharia, Tariqa, Marifa. Amongst the Freemasons, you had the, the apprentices, the journeymen, and the masters. It's all the same. It's the same steps, the same path, but just talked about in different words, different languages. So Bodhi is wisdom. It is light. It is perception. It is when you see and you understand the root of some problem and how to change it. It is enlightenment. It is knowing. Chitta is often translated as mind. It's better if we say consciousness. Because in our common parlance, mind is intellect, thought. But chitta is really the essence, the seed, the heart. And in some translations, bodhicitta can mean heart-mind, heart-wisdom, wisdom-love. It is that state of being in which we are able to, again, transcend pain, to know how to solve problems. In the introductory level, this bodhicitta is the altruistic intention to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. It's the joy of saying, I will serve in my life other people so that they are not suffering anymore. And to make the effort to change my life to do so. But intentions are not enough. Action is what is essential. Action is the heart doctrine. In Mahayana teachings, maha meaning great, yana meaning vehicle. It is an elevated state of awareness known as pranya in Sanskrit, 
which directly perceives emptiness. This is a very beautiful philosophy. If you've studied it, emptiness, no self, no anger, pride, hate. It is clarity. It is not a mere absence. It is presence, but free of condition, free of our defects. It is heaven. And there's even a Sufi initiate who said that wherever you are, that is hell. But wherever you aren't, that is heaven. Doesn't mean we don't experience. It means that we transcend this lower self and put an end to the causes of pain. That is a quality of the heart. The heart knows reality from falsehood when it is clarified, especially with the last level of religion, Tantra. In Tantra, obviously in the West, it is the connotation about a relationship. A man and a woman in a marriage can take the most powerful energy that they have in life, the power to create, and by conserving it, transforming it, and elevating it with purity, it awakens the soul. Tantra means continuum. It's not just sexual connection. It's continuity of perception empowered by the power of life. It is the ability to see, to be awake, to not lose your presence, to be in that constant movement of consciousness, always watching, always learning, always seeing, always perceiving and knowing. It also, bodhicitta, refers to the seminal fluids of the body because that fluid is the waters of life, which when transformed and never lost can be the source of real power, real vitality, real strength. These are the waters of life mentioned in the Bible and it's the source of Jesus' injunction, you must be born again because it is a sexual problem. Obviously, there's levels to this. We'll just touch on this briefly. In Tibetan, beyond sems can be translated either as enlightened mind or semen. And that energy can really give power if we know how. But the voice of the silence emphasizes that with Tantra, purity is fundamental. And this is the great mistake of many Westerners who approach Tantra with desire, with ignorance. It is very poorly taught. And actually, most schools that teach about Tantra today teach you how to take the energies of God and to feed desire, to feel lust. And yes, there are people who awaken powers, abilities, perceptions, but not as an angel, as a demon. Because... All religions teach, and the voice of the silence teaches, desire is the root of pain. Ego, pride, attachment, laziness, whatever it may be. The soul must be pure. The soul must be clean. And that is the power of the heart. But that energy depends on how we really use it, determines our life. Think of it. You can have a child. You can create a human being who can change the world. 
one person can radically alter the fate of history because a man and a woman joined together to create that person. That is an extremely unbelievable power. It is the power of the universe. It is the power of creation. It is the power of divinity. But there are ways to use the energy that are not taught in public until now. That energy that can create, instead of a child, create a god inside. One of the names of the Islamic faith for divinity, Al-Wadud, the loving, and Al-Khaliq, the creator, is a <clears throat> reference to that sexual power. For where else do we find the power to create through love but in sex? It's the power of life, which is why the Jews toast Lachayim, to life, the power of living, the power of creation. But that energy can be misused. The dewdrop of heaven, of Amrita, can mix with our impurities. And that is the problem. And that is why in most of us, our heart is dead. Because the heart is not nourished with the waters of life. It is not a fountain that flows inward and upward to the mind, to the heart, as energy, as a circuit, as tantra, to clean out the mind, to purify it. Before that path is entered, thou must destroy thy lunar body, cleanse thy mind body, and make clean thy heart. Eternal life's pure waters, clear and crystal, with the monsoon tempest, muddy torrents cannot mingle. Heaven's dewdrops glittering in the morn's first sunbeam within the bosom of the lotus, when dropped on earth becomes a piece of clay. Behold, the pearl is now a speck of mire. I'm pretty sure we all can think of moments in our life where maybe because we had an innocence or purity, in a moment we make a wrong decision. We give in to maybe anger, desire, lust, and that purity of the soul is lost. It is extinguished. The heart is dead. But the heart can be reawakened with greater force if we cooperate with our inner divinity, with conscience, with the voice of the silence, the voice of divinity. In our Western culture, we believe that by giving into desire, we will be happy. We feel satisfaction for whatever it may be. And it is precisely this belief which has made the world a mess because everyone of every religion fundamentally ignores what the prophets taught that desires the source of pain. Deny thyself, take up your cross and follow me, said Jesus. Or desire is never satiated by feeding it according to the laws of Manu, which is one of the oldest scriptures of Hinduism. The voice of the silence emphasizes these same points. Do not believe that lust can ever be killed out if gratified and satiated, for this is an abomination inspired by Mara, illusion, attachment, craving, passion. It is by feeding vice that it expands and waxes strong, like to the worm that fattens on the blossom's heart. However, the rose of real love can be reawakened. The rose must re-become re the bud born of its parent stem. Before the parasite has eaten through its heart, 
and draw its life sap. Again, the rose is a symbol of real purity. But purity through wisdom. Because all of us, by the inevitability of life, have made mistakes, entered our, really our karma in life, our situation, our struggle, and have erred. But that innocence can be reborn. The heart can be inflamed. And so Mahayana Buddhism, especially the heart doctrine, which is the path of service and charity, but also our spirituality being focused on others, not ourselves. We really discover that as we awaken the heart, we feel the pain of others. We feel their sufferings. We are identified with them and not attached to our own sense of fear and inadequacy or deficiency or pain. Instead, our spirituality, the heart doctrine, becomes working for the benefit of others. And that helps us in many practical ways. It really helps us to get over our own pain. You know, we see that someone in our life is in a lot of suffering, even though we are. Our pain is alleviated when we help others. It's a basic law, the law of Christ, reciprocity, give and receive, sacrifice and be blessed and in this way as we learn to give even though it may hurt there is real peace because we know we do the right thing and in that way the mind becomes stable the heart becomes strong and compassion is the guiding force of our will that is how we enter real serenity and silence. Many people try meditation. They sit down. They close their eyes and they see that their mind is a mess. Thoughts everywhere. Associative thinking. Images, memories, daydreams. Passions, attachments, revenge. Vengeful, spiteful images. A big conglomeration of just disturbance. Dissonance. The reason why many people fail meditation is because they don't develop their heart. They don't develop their ethics. In their daily life, they do not understand how they are perpetuating their own pain. But if we are really observant and acting rightly in our heart, our conscience, in truth, we become like an arhat, which is a term for a meditator. Stable and serene, able to deal with intense impressions in life, maybe Someone's yelling at us at our job or our family members cursing us out for something. We didn't wash the dishes at home. Our, our spouse is mad at us. Someone gets really upset or angry. But in the end, we're calm. We don't feel bad. We don't feel guilt. We don't feel remorse. Let thy soul lend its ear to every cry of pain like as the lotus bears its heart to drink the morning sun. Let not the fierce sun dry one tear of pain before thyself has wiped it from the sufferer's eye. But let each burning human tear drop on thy heart and there remain, nor ever brush it off until the pain that caused it is removed. These tears, O thou of heart most merciful, these are the streams that irrigate the fields of charity immortal. Tis on such soil that grows the midnight blossom of Buddha more difficult to find 
more rare to view than is the flower of the Vogue tree. That Vogue tree is this, the tree of life, the Kabbalah, levels of being, spheres, 10 in alignment with three pillars, mapping out the highest divinity to us in terms of our physical experience, our psychology, our divinity. This Vogue tree, this tree of life is born in us. We develop the heart, Tifereth in Hebrew meaning will, beauty. And if you take this image and transpose it on a person, Tifereth is the heart, our willpower. But that will needs to be guided by charity, by love. It is the seed of freedom from rebirth. It isolates the Arhat, the meditator, both from strife and lust. It leads him through the fields of being unto the peace and bliss known only in the land of silence and non-being. So this level of, this map depicts levels of nature. In this lower sphere, Malkut, we have our physical body where we have a very strong sense of self. But the higher up you go in levels of matter, energy, nature, and perception, the less self you are and the more divinity is until going even beyond that, the emptiness, the void, the absolute, the cosmic space, which is real joy and freedom, real compassion, and is the essence of Buddhism especially, and even Christianity. Because that Christos, that light, which maps out this top glyph, emanates from that source. Light from darkness. Cosmology. So the point is, charity is the way. Service. Giving. Because the other solution for a lot of people is to develop their spirituality for themselves. It might seem strange. What does selfish liberation even mean? How can a spiritual person be selfish? There are some people, actually many people, who believe that only they want to liberate themselves. And that the way to real freedom to go beyond pain is to just concentrate on oneself simply try to understand what one's doing wrong and not bother with the world and this is wrong obviously in the beginning in the incipient levels of the path we obviously want to change our life in some radical way so that we suffer less but there becomes a threshold or a point in which we have to decide are we going to go further? And that really depends on whether we're willing to give to others, to sacrifice. Sacrifice is the law of Christ, the law of Buddha, the law of Muhammad, the law of Krishna, the law of Moses. Giving, charity, doesn't mean money, doesn't really mean material means, doesn't really mean food. Those are beautiful things and they really help. But really from the consciousness of the heart, our being, the state of love is really what defines us. And so the voice of the silence touches on a lot of things that many authors did talk about that really spirituality is really profound when it's not about us. It's about humanity. Those are the, at least the explanations of the highest initiates and so this scripture emphasizes a few points 
about some common tendencies amongst spiritual students. If thou art told that to become Arhan, thou hast to cease to love all beings, tell them they lie. If thou art told that to gain liberation, thou hast to hate thy mother and disregard thy son, to disavow thy father and call him householder, for man and beast all pity to renounce, tell them that their tongue is false. Thus teach the Tirthikas, the unbelievers. It's a very important thing to understand because this path is very revolutionary and it requires foundations. Someone who's not good at home with their partner will have problems, will have conflicts. And those fights and disagreements and hate saturates and spills over into life in a way that what goes on at home determines many things, even in schools, with parents, with children who are very vulnerable, whose hearts are really awakening and who are not given the education that they need to really be. There are many people who think that to be spiritual, to follow the heart doctrine means to not be worldly. Oh, I don't care about money. I don't care about my father or mother. I care about being spiritual. And they abandon their families and life and world and don't realize that they're causing a lot of pain. And really that their spirituality would be authentic if they learn to take their life their life, and where they're at to be a good person, to be a good husband, to be a, a good spouse, a good child, a good father, a good mother. So, so much, this is not really about you know, joining a monastery, although that could be good. We live in very different times. Obviously, it's good to go out on meditation retreat to be away from the cities to gain some stability of mind. But in this era, we live in a time of cooperation where because of karma and life and modern living, we have to be in the world. But it doesn't mean that you have to be of it. So these um, Tirthikas mention a few things kind of some common philosophical misconceptions about this hard doctrine. They often believe that any action is sinful and that by not acting, they are blissful, meaning to avoid the world. Go live out in the mountains. Abandon the world. It sounds pleasing. You know, Walden was very good in terms of a, you think of getting out in nature and just being away from the cities. It's good for a time, but it's not enough. Really, the quality of a prophet is one to maintain that high ethical ideal and live it, but also show it to others, to practice it. And in this way, while they're in the world, really, they uh, don't identify so much with the craziness of the world, in a sense, because life is impermanent. As intense as certain situations in life may be in modern living, these things will pass. They're not permanent. And with that wisdom of emptiness, that things change and always fluctuating, one has the ability to let go, but also to know how to act clearly. And that's the basic fundamental philosophy of Mahayana Buddhism and Bodhicitta, to understand that nothing is permanent. But at the same time, situations need to be changed and can be produced for the benefit of others. If thou art taught that sin is born of action and bliss of absolute inaction, then tell them that they err. Non-permanence of human action 
deliverance of mind from the thraldom by the cessation of sins and faults are not for deva egos. Thus saith the doctrine of the heart. So this non-permanence of human action, the fact that you know things always change and that the mind can be freed from suffering and sins and faults is not for ego, defects, vices and errors. It's for the soul, the consciousness, the heart. So it's a very interesting distinction, right? I mean, when pain ceases, when we get rid of anger, not repressing or hiding it or feeding it, but observing and studying it and disintegrating it and freeing love. That is really the transformation of the heart, the soul. That is the embodiment of the real. And in that state, we realize that those former ways of being were illusory, were a dream. False. The Dharma of the eye is the embodiment of the external and the non-existing. Because these appearances are superficial. They change, they pass. Like a wave in the ocean. Like sand on foam. Like a mirage. The Dharma of the heart is the embodiment of Bodhi, the permanent and everlasting. But to really know this requires experience. Knowing what in us is really that state that is very stable and secure and, and divine. Without attachment. It is everlasting and real. But obviously, we have to work to be patient with it. So the voice of the silence builds on a few other ideas in relation to the higher stages of the heart doctrine. Um, we mentioned a few quotes about lunar bodies, right? You heard that line. There's... um. Interesting teaching in Theosophy, or Blavatsky, and also Salman Vior, where they talk about in the way that we inhabit our dreams, or inhabit certain, we inhabit our physical body in the physical world. Likewise, in the dream worlds, we have a body, a dream body, astral body. But for most of us, it's not authentic, not spiritual. It's more of a lunar body, meaning we're born with it by nature. We acquire it so that we can live in those dimensions when we sleep, physically, and then we return to our body when we wake. They belong to mechanical nature. It's lunar because it belongs to a type of mechanicity. It wasn't intentionally created by us, not voluntary. There's another type of body that is something that we need to create in this heart doctrine so that if we wish to go to higher states, more altered or divine states of consciousness, we create what are known as solar bodies. The soul, the sun, the power of Christ. So again, talking about that creative energy, which is the power of life, that energy can create bodies that belong to higher levels of nature, divinity. Call them solar bodies. They're vessels or vehicles in which Christ can enter our inner divinity so that we become, you know, fully developed. And so those vestures are called, in terms of a, Higher bodies, you can say at the top of the tree of life, Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, Dharmakaya. This is Buddhism, or the essence of Tantra. In the process of sacrificing ourselves and being better people for our communities, we also learn to work with um, this creative energy so that we can, you know, give birth to higher states of being. If thou wouldst reap sweet peace and rest, disciple, sow with the seeds of merit the fields of future harvest, accept the woes of birth. Step out from sunlight into shade to make more room for others. 
The tears that water the parched soil of pain and sorrow bring forth the blossoms and the fruits of karmic retribution. Out of the furnace of man's life and its black smoke, weaned flames arise. Flames purified. That soaring outward neath the karmic eye, weave in the end the fabric glorified of the three vestures of the path. These vestures are Nirmanakaya, Sabokakaya, and Dharmakaya. Robe some line. These are the, really, um, the wedding garment of the soul mentioned in the New Testament. This top trinity is the, precisely those three higher bodies, which relate to the highest divinity. Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, Katera, Hukma, Bina. So different traditions teach the same thing. But the reality is creating solar bodies is not enough. Obviously being born again is not enough. There needs to be compassion. It's a strange thing. Why is it that if we create these higher vehicles of God, that it is not enough to be born? Obviously in life, it's not enough just to be born. We have to get educated. We go to school. We learn from our parents. We learn from our families. That knowledge of the heart doctrine is really what informs our understanding of how to use those vehicles in the best way. Because in that development, we obviously have imperfections and defects as we gradually purify right? Bodhicitta is fundamental. That love for others, that it is the guiding force that drives our spiritual work. Because any amount of um, attachment or craving can be you know, an obstacle. This is why Samal Vyar stated in the Pisces Sophia, unveiled. The one who does not possess the bodhicitta, even when he has created the superior existential bodies of the being, is still unconscious and absurd. So, lunar body below, solar body above. And obviously, having those vehicles is, again, not enough. I'm sure you've all heard of mythologies in which the gods are fighting. Those are beings of these higher realms who have those vehicles, have their foot up in that level of kingdoms of nature, but they still have pride, anger, resentment, and so they, they struggle with each other. Bodhicitta is beyond that. It is beyond just creating bodies, but it is the selflessness of the higher worlds. And so the heart doctrine can seem very intimidating because it involves a lot. It's very overwhelming. But the reality is that whatever we can do now sets the stage for later. You know, you know whether or not we believe in reincarnation or multiple births is one thing, but the heart doctrine teaches, you know, when we experience, it's not a theory. Personally, I mean, I know about from my experiences and dreams and visions that I was in certain places of the world in the past, certain cultures, which explains my affinity for certain religions. So not a theory for me. It's my, the heart doctrine. But everything we do will set the stage for future existences. If maybe in this life we're not capable of being like Jesus or Padmasambhava or Buddha, then we can do what we can. And that's enough. You know, the pace depends on us and whether the strength of impulse that we have and will and the inspiration. Yet if the heart doctrine or the doctrine of the heart is too high-winged for thee, if thou needst help thyself and fears to offer help to others, then thou of timid heart be warned in time. Remain content with the high doctrine of the law. Hope still, for if the secret path is unattainable this day, it is within thy reach tomorrow. Learn that no efforts, not the smallest, whether in right or wrong direction, can vanish from the world of causes, which is basically Tifereth, 
the world of causal nature, cause and effect, Tifereth, the world of will. In waste and smoke remains not traceless. A harsh word uttered in past lives is not destroyed, but ever comes again. The pepper plant will not give birth to roses, nor the sweet jasmine's silver star to thorn or thistle turn. This is because karma is certain. Cause and effect is a reality. Not only what we do physically, but what we think, what we feel, and what we desire. You know, we see this even in dreams. And most times we're unconscious, we're not aware that we're dreaming. We're just driven by our desires and impulses to satisfy whatever. Still, it's cause and effect, but in different levels of nature. Within Hod, the astral world, the dream world. Because why else would we believe it to be true in the moment, even though we wake up later and say it was just a dream? Why didn't we believe that in the moment when we were dreaming? Because there's a certain level of matter, energy, and perception there. And this also applies to our thinking, our emotions, and our state of being, because these are real. So the thing to think about, too, is that, you know, every good deed counts. Thou canst create this day thy chances for thy morrow. In the great journey, causes sown each hour bear each its harvest of effects. For rigid justice rules the world. With mighty sweep of ever, never erring action, it brings to mortal li mortals' lives of weal or woe the comic, karmic progeny of all our former thoughts and deeds. In this way, we should learn, you know, to accept our situation in life. Obviously, we always want to improve, to aspire, to change. But contentment is a quality that really helps us develop spiritually. Accepting what we have and being grateful for what we do have. So that by willingly bearing this karmic sorrow that we heard in Karmina Burana, we can, you know, pay it. In a sense, we either pay with pain or we pay with negotiations, with the divine law, with the heart. We prove with our actions and our way of being, you know, how to resolve these issues. But sometimes we pay with pain and it's inevitable. And when it's over, it's good. It's done. No more. And this teaches us patience. Patience is a little heart, which is certain about its fate and knows that it is being guided by divinity. And this is not a belief system. It's from experience. To have faith is to know. Take then as much as merit as hath in store for thee, O thou of patient heart. Be of good cheer and rest content with fate. Such is thy karma, the karma of the cycle of thy births, the destiny of those who, in their pain and sorrow, are born along with thee, rejoice and weep from life to life, chained to thy previous actions. So this might seem a little bit, you know, fatalistic, right? That's the common idea between the wheel of fortune, that it just happens to you and that you just suffer and you just go along with the flow. That tends to be the case for most people because they're not willing to look at themselves at what is perpetuating that cycle. And really, in Buddhist terms, nirvana means cessation, to cut through cycling, to cut through samsara, repetition. That happens in our life, moment by moment, in the decisions that we make and being awake in the heart so that we don't repeat certain things and we can originate new circumstances. That sets a new uh, chain of events. In this way, we learn to strive and so the fundamental axiom of religion is kill desire. 
kill anger, kill pride, kill lust, because it is the enemy. It is the unbeliever mentioned in the Quran, the infidels, which is not anyone outside our faith, but really pride that does not believe in helping others, love that doesn't believe in serving God. Because in a moment, as much as we love our traditions, when we have anger, we don't believe in God. We become an infidel, an unbeliever, and cause real havoc and pain. Kill out desire, but if thou killest it, take heed lest from the dead it should again rise. Kill love of life, better said egotistical life. But if thou slayest tanha, really illusion, let this not be for thirst of life eternal, but to replace the fleeting by the everlasting. Some people have spiritual ambition. I'm pretty sure, you know, we all do. Like we want to, we hear about these things and we want to go to nirvana and, you know, go to the highest heaven and we say, I'm going to make it to the end. I'm so excited. And then the reality hits. Not easy. You know, even the ambition has to die to accept reality. Desire nothing. Chafe not at karma, nor at nature's changeless laws, but struggle only with the personal, the transitory, the evanescent, and the perishable. By desiring nothing doesn't mean don't enjoy life. The soul can enjoy life. Doesn't mean we become dead, you know, dysphoric or zombie-like. It means that we are vivid and lucid in the heart, you know, experiencing a a rainfall with, without our labels, our mind, trying to mar the reality. And chafe not at karma because cause and effect is certain. If certain things happen to us that may be unjust or painful, it's important to get at the root, meditate why it happened, find out. And struggle with the personal, the transitory, and the evanescent, the perishable, because really all of our defects are that. They are not eternal. So the heart doctrine is about personal spiritual experience. But what we outlined today was to talk about some principles that relate to many aspects of the path, because all of it is governed by the heart. You know, Salman Vera said in the perfect matrimony that initiation is your own life, intensely lived with rectitude and love with our heart. You have any questions? Sure. So you had this slide, Selfish Liberation, but actually this was kind of a theme going through um, what Blavatsky's written here in this section. Um, you said something like, some people believe that they can just work on themselves, not really worry so much about the world, but just focus on, you know, fixing what they're doing wrong and they can reach liberation. And you said that that's wrong. I was always under the impression that although that's kind of an introductory level of liberation, that that technique or that method actually could help a soul to reach some degree of liberation. Now, maybe that's more Trivakayana and not so much Tantrayana, but is it true that that really is wrong and you can't reach liberation if you're just, you know, worrying about you doing some good deeds, but not getting caught up in the world as much? I'll clarify in terms of relativity. In terms of the higher path, it's wrong to be selfish. But obviously in the beginning, we start where we're at. You know, 
in most cases, we need to fix ourselves first. You know, maybe take a year, two years, three years, however long, do what we got to do. And then once we have that stability, we can try to sacrifice in whatever way we can. Relative. Obviously, what's, you know, good for one person may be bad for another in the sense of uh, life choices. But in terms of the prophets, obviously, they their whole focus is on us. Beginners, we work with ourselves. Mahayana, intermediate, we try to help other people. Tantrayana, not even an inkling of self. That's how rare it is. But yeah, we have to start with where we're at. So if some of these levels of, of being take lifetimes to develop, is it possible that someone would spend a whole lifetime just as a monk? You know, just working on themselves, getting separated from the world to kind of just build a foundation there and then maybe in a future lifetime they might keep going yes it could still be helpful for us but we have to kind of gauge where we're at spiritually how could we know if if that's what we need or if we need to work with these higher teachings we get that answer in meditation and in our conscience personally i would love to go live in a monastery You know, we do retreats with Gloria Publishing. We go out to Padmasamaling. You know, in a sense, it's the best week and also the worst week of my life every year because you get so much spiritual strength from the community and being out in nature, no cell phones, no technology, that you really get to settle down. It's also the worst week because you see clearly what you need to work on. And it's, it can be tough. But... There are many monks, people I've known, who've gone to monastery and they need it and they choose and they were guided to. Only divinity can decide. But yeah, we have to learn to follow his will, not ours. Sure. Is that related to the gymnasium of life? Because like, like, yeah, I understand that like I was trying to understand that when you work on yourself, you have to stay away from the world because the world contaminates you. But at the same time, we have to be in the world because that helps us to refine ourselves. So it's very hard to put those things together and make them work. So that has to do with the gymnasium of life. Yes. And Sam Oliveira mentions that for most of us, we need a gymnasium because we're at a point that we have so many defects and such heavy karma that this is probably one of our last opportunities. And so divinity is exerting a lot of energy, which you see in Carmina Burana. Literally, the intensity of the music is like literally that karma hitting the soul. And the soul has the choice, you know, take advantage of the gymnasium or crumble. You know, and there's a line, too, that at the end of the first piece is very optimistic, actually, despite the intensity, the severity of the music. You see, uh, says something like pluck the vibrating string. It's a weird line in the middle of a chorus of melancholy and pain. That string or that, you know, instrument is precisely in that image of the Divine Mother, the chakras, the seven notes. In a way, in the midst of our pain, we need to endure it and learn to play music, which is what Karl Orff was doing. 
You know, it's such a powerful, severe piece, but it's like he obviously felt a lot of passion and joy, you know, making it because he needed to, you know, to talk about the severity of life and the gymnasium we need to face so that we pay that karma, but also play the music of the soul despite it. And um, seven strings, seven notes, seven chakras, right? And that helps to, you know, we learn to vibrate with a higher law, you know? Yeah, most of us were in that point where, you know, this might be the end. So it's all, it's all being thrown at us at once. So we need the gymnasium. And divinity is the one who's organizing our life. So if we need to be in that gymnasium, it's going to give us what we need. And if we need to be in the monastery forever along, he decides that. The circumstances will line up and the heart will tell, especially when we're meditating and we get that insight. Personally, for me, I mean, every time I ask for a break, I don't get one. But when I need it, it comes and it's like, okay, I accept. You know, we take what we can and make music despite the, the agony, you know. That's the power of uh, that piece, especially. Carmina Burana. Karma. Carmen. Cause and effect. Karman in Sanskrit. Ur-ana. Uranos. Ur meaning light. Anas meaning water. In Chaldean, Chaldean. And you make light or you overcome karma by developing light and working with the water of Bodhicitta. Fate strikes on the strong man. Everyone weep with me. But then there's that triumphant at the end of the first piece of O Fortuna, the trumpet, which is the trumpet of resurrection, according to the Quran and, you know, the scriptures. That's how we find joy is by paying it. But yeah, this, uh, divinity decides. Um, are those levels you mentioned, um, are they related to what the teacher Samad says about the three mountains and how we uh, we can spend um, lives in one mountain and then develop to the other? But the last one is the one when we sacrifice everything to for humanity. So, so. Yeah, yeah, levels, right? I mean, in a sense, you have the three mountain poster, right? Uh, Glory and is available. Three levels of, of initiation, or better said, three levels of spiritual work. You can even categorize them under introductory, intermediate, and advanced. Shavakayana, Mahayana, Tantrayana. Because really, I mean, really the first mountain is the beginning. It's called initiation. It's the path in which we first descend and face ourselves in our own hell realms. We enter what's called minor mysteries, nine you know, it's a probation path. It's like divinity says, okay, you want to enter the path? Let's test you. As the Quran says, truly we, you know, test you. Allah tests you to see who among, who among you is righteous. And this is precisely this. We get the karma, the ordeals. It happens and then we find a, the teaching, we suddenly face a lot of problems. In a sense, yeah, I mean, it can be. But usually I would say the dark night of the soul occurs even later on when like you have some level of development and it's like suddenly divinity says okay here's a period in which we have to withdraw from our your presence so that you face the loneliness and sometimes the dark night of the soul is a uh, you know as depicted by beethoven's moonlight sonata you know when real heavy ordeals hit and that's usually for masters especially 
you know, Beethoven was going deaf at that time. So you hear his sorrow in his music that he wants to hear this prophetic work, but he can't. And uh, yeah, it happens in many stages of the path. But initiation is when you enter what is called the major mysteries. You know, minor mysteries can be performed by single persons. Introductory level, you know, but married couples can go through them very quickly and enter the major mysteries, which there are five major ones, which are talked about in a book called The Three Mountains. In a sense, this is all introductory for in terms of scale or resolution, because for us, you know, you know, we have our own relative degree of introductory knowledge, intermediate knowledge, advanced knowledge. But there are higher, I mean, higher stages of initiation. There's a decision that the initiate has to make after really working with these lower five spheres of the tree of life, creating uh, the solar bodies of these low, this lower diagram. Raising what is called Kundalini of the body of Malkut, the physical body. Yesod, the vital body. Our physical body, vital body. Hod, the astral body. Netzak, the mental body. Tifereth, the causal body. You create what is known as the wedding garment of the soul. And in a sense, at that point, the initiate has to make a decision. Renounce everything and incarnate Christ, the light. Or stay in nirvana, take a spiral path, which is the selfish path of liberation, the path of the selfish gods, because they enjoy that level of nature. They don't return and they stay in bliss. But an initiate who at that point decides to sacrifice everything and wants to return to the world to give to humanity to continue serving. They have the, the special blessing to receive what is known as the Venustic Initiation, the Incarnation of Christ. And they become what is known as a Bodhisattva, like Jesus, Buddha. They incarnate the light. And then at that point, they enter higher development on the first mountain, raising not only serpents of fire, Kundalini, up these lower bodies, but serpents of light, fire and light, Ur Anas, in a sense. Second mountain, very elevated. The initiate has to learn to die. All of the ego, imperfection, desire must be eliminated. Intermediate path in a sense, because, you know, it's still very difficult. It's probably one of the most difficult parts. But that's a level of work in which the soul is dying to every detail of defect. No imperfection can remain. And as they descend down hell realms, you can kind of see it in this glyph too. Nine lower spheres mentioned by Dante. Eliminating defects relating to the first sphere of hell. They go up to the first heaven. Second sphere of hell. They go up to the second heaven. And likewise, down and up. Down and up. Further further down, further higher up. Because every initiation is preceded by humiliation. Through challenges. Because the work of the defect is, or the work of initiation is to eliminate all that is, you know, imperfect. Obviously, you know, at that point, when the ego is fully dead, the initiate prepares for what is known as resurrection. Because there has to be no fault in the soul at all. That's the level of, say, you know, Jesus before he, you know, before he died. No ego left. He was crucified, but he had no ego on the cross. Dead. No defect. In a sense of a spiritual, psychological state. No anger, no pride, no fear, no lust. Perfect to a degree. But in the end, his physical body died and he chose to resurrect 
That's when the soul gets absorbed, really, by the Holy Spirit, Bina. Then there's a third mountain, which is for resurrected masters, which is, personally, I don't even understand. Because, I mean, I've had certain experiences where I've seen parts of this, but it's uh, still very elevated. And even for resurrected masters, they have to go higher from Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, Dharmakaya, and even beyond. At that point, they're fulfilling the final labors in which they return to the Ain Sof in Kabbalah, which is the really the origin, the star of heaven, the star of Bethlehem, the synthesis of being. It's like a star that irradiates light in the void, but is the real happiness of bodhicitta, of being. And that star shone on the birth of Christ with the three magi. Three magi, you know, depicting levels of work. You know, you have a, a black king, a yellow king, and a white king. And those are symbols relating to alchemy, the alchemical tradition, colors related to purification of the soul, levels. You know, I recommend if you're interested, obviously you study the three mountains, but also we have this poster available from Glorian Publishing, you know, maps out all the steps. But obviously this, you know, these levels are very elevated. I mean, a lot of us struggle even just minor mysteries and getting our foot in the door of the major mysteries. You know, most initiates who get, if they get to this point, you know, fifth initiation of major mysteries, causal body, create that vehicle, are tired because it's, you know, I heard one instructor, he's from Glorian, he said that most of them weep tears of blood to get to that point. And then when they're given the choice, you want to go to the spiral path, you know, stay in Nirvana, enjoy your time, be peaceful up here, or take the direct path of Jesus. Renounce heaven, renounce hell, go beyond, in which you pay everything. You pay all your karma. In a sense, like in Karmina Burana, that initiate is precisely that strong man or the strong. Fate strikes on the strong. Let everyone weep with me. That is the mountain of the resurrection. Because that pain is very intense. You know, but most of them say, I'll take the spiral path. It's not bad. It's joyful. It's peaceful. You know, it's a good vacation. You know, but the straight path is something else. You know, very challenging. The next lecture we'll give uh, next week, we'll talk about this in more detail. Especially in the voice of the silence. I know it's a lot. Hey. Could you expand on the law of the divine? Sure. Karma. Karma is divinity. There's levels of karma too. Karma means cause and effect. You know, what we do has consequences. In a sense, there are five aspects of the divine law. Certainty, magnification, permanence. Um, that cause and effect is certain. It's, it will always happen. You know, whatever we do has a consequence. Magnification. The effect is always greater than the cause. Think of it like you see a politician give a speech. And then people get mad. Because that person's speaking with a lot of hate. Or any person. You know? It's like putting a stone in a water. A lake. You throw the stone. The lake ripples. Spreads. The initial action was small, but it had a big consequence. Magnification. Things always, the effect is always greater than the cause. 
um, permanence. You know, you can't take back the actions that you've committed. You know, can't take back a bullet. It always happens. You know, my mind is escaping me in terms of the fourth, but there's five levels, right? But uh, the more important one is uh, transcendence, meaning like a superior action overcomes an inferior one, and that's really where divine law comes into play. You know, divine law being uh, forgiveness. In a sense, there's karma for, you know, everybody. You know, terrestrial people, everyone, all of us who are, you know, lay people, you know, beginners. But there's also a karma of the gods called katansia, which is something very high. Isn't also dependent upon our soul contract? Yes. In a sense, initiation is a contract. In the beginning of the Minor Mysteries, you may have the experience in the internal worlds of being confronted by your own being in a vision. They say, do you want this? And we'll show you what's ahead. In a way, divinity, the divine law saying, do you wish to, are you going to sign this? Because if you don't pay up, there are worse consequences. You are more responsible. In a sense, that's katansia, the law of initiates. Law of common people, you can see in uh, Egyptian mythology with Anubis. You know, he has the jackal mask. He's judging the dead and the living. They're souls of the defunct with a scale. He measures their heart and a feather. The equilibrium of their mind and their, and their bodhicitta. Their heart doctrine or their heart. And Anubis is a real being. You know, he judges in the internal worlds the fate of humanity. You know, he's an impartial judge. He has a mask to show that he is a divine representative, the blind justice, which is not arbitrariness, but impartiality. But there's a higher law. In dreams, if you dream of wolves or jackals, it's a symbol of the karma, the wolf of the law, the jackal, Anubis. You dream of a lion, that is Judah, Katansia. And the lion is a symbol of divine majesty, you know? The might of God, Judea, Yeshua, Savior, the Christ, Yehuda, yod Hey, vav dalet Hey, Same letters as Jehovah, yod hava, but with Dalet. Because the Dalet in Hebrew, if you look at the uh, Hebrew letters, um, they all represent principles. And if you add in the sacred four-letter name of God, yod Hey, vav Hey, Jehovah, yod hava, you add Dalet. Dalet refers to uh, a door. And that's a door once you cross, you can't go back. You're committed. That now that door is dot knowledge, alchemy, the work with creative energy. Because you start working with that, Jeho uh, Yehuda, Jehovah, Judea, the, the higher law of divinity says you enter that door, you can't go back. You're committed. And to dream of a lion means, you know, you may have entered initiation in the past. But you fell in the law. The lion, if it's calm, the law says we're on your side. But if it roars, walk on eggshells. Very severe. And that divine law has levels, you know. Obviously, for us in the beginning, we make mistakes. We're, we fumble around. We're in the dark. And so our mistakes are easily forgiven. But when there's more knowledge and responsibility, you know, following divine law, what's higher, you know, action and service of spirit, there's greater consequences because the effects are always greater than the cause. 
according to Tsongkhapa in Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. And um, yeah, that divine law is you know, really our own being because that he is a law in ourselves, the law of conscience, of what is right and what is wrong, the heart. Yes, and those virtues are really developed when we eliminate um, defects. Because the defects trap the virtue. Right? You have the seven deadly sins in Christianity, you know, Catholicism. The opposite is the virtue. But the virtue is trapped in the anger. Like, love is trapped in anger. Purity is trapped in, chastity is trapped in lust. And if we eliminate the, the defects, you free the genie from the lamp. When you break the bottle, you free the genie forever. And that's how, you know, by integrating consciousness little by little on the spiritual work, we become really virtuous. We become like Moses, a magician. And really Moses could control, you know, hey, welcome. Good to see you. Moses could really control all these things because his power came from God. But he could only do that by getting rid of his self. So that the virtues could be spontaneous. And then also by enacting those virtues when they're born, you know, they get stronger. They become more powerful. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.